year, we are kind of going back to our roots and remembering, thank you for removing the sheath there, remembering who we are um, and what we're all about. And um, our frame of doing that is starting with why, rather than starting with the what or the how, we're starting with why. Why do we do what we do? What drives us? What are our fundamental motivations for um, our postures in the world as God's people? And lots of us at the beginning of a new year are thinking about that personally, too. Um, what do I want this year to be like? Uh, what, what do I want to accomplish? What, what, um, what do I want to see this year turn out to be? And so starting with why related to how we want this year to turn out for us in our in our workplaces or in our families as followers of Jesus, that's a great place to start, too. And so we're in the midst of discussing six motivations that drive us to do what we do as a community and that drive us personally as followers of Jesus in our families, in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods. Today is the fifth motivation. God is at the margins. When I was 19, uh, literally uh, half my life ago, depressing thought when I reflected on that, uh, it seems like yesterday, I got, uh, I got a summer internship with uh, the Fortress Church of Christ in downtown Fort Worth, Texas. Fortress was started by a couple named Ke- uh, Jeff and Kama, and they were radicals. They uh, they looked um, for, okay where in the city of Fort Worth does nobody want to start a church? And that is where they went to start a church Uh, right near Lancaster Avenue, where there's lots of crime and poverty. um, That was the place where they wanted to go to start a new church. And my time in internship there was one of my first experiences with ministry leadership. Uh, at what we might call the margins. Fortress was a pretty typical like inner city kind of church. You know, they had a, a youth program for at-risk kids. They had a social worker and a food pantry that they would, um, they also had a clothes closet so folks from the community could come in and get food and clothes as they needed it. And I remember we would stock the pantry and Jeff and Kama would let us eat um, little Vienna sausages that had expired out of the can um, for our lunch meal that, you know, Jeff had driven all over the city to all these grocery stores to pick up whatever food that they would give. And um, so, yeah, we were um, suffering for the Lord of that one. It was delicious. Um, They also had a Sunday morning worship gathering every Sunday morning. In addition to the slew of kids that they would invite in and go and pick up on these Huge buses that were driven by teenage interns. They would bring them all in from the uh, all in from the neighborhood, and then folks from the streets would just make their way in to this uh, gathering. Many, you know, my internship was in the summer, so it was really hot, and lots of them, you know, that, that understandably wanted to get out of the heat and find a cool place. Um, and we had this worship gathering afterwards. We had a big lunch meal. And uh, many of them will ha- want to hang out and eat, l- eat lunch with us. And um, this is what I did for a couple of months, week in, week out. And I'll admit, this was my least favorite internship. Um, the smells in that place were, 
they were terrible. They were offensive to your nostrils. Um, the kids had really significant behavioral challenges. Um, it was not glorious. In fact, it was quite overwhelming. Uh, you're constantly confronted with the weight of systemic injustice and poverty and hunger and homelessness and how messy and difficult that it is and, and audacious to try to address or even put a Band-Aid on any of those problems or challenges. Um, that is par for the course at the margins. And at the end of the summer, um, no surprise, I decided, nope, uh, that's not for me. I'm going to move in a different direction with my life. I'm not super passionate about that, so that must be an indicator that God is definitely not calling me into this kind of work. I was really uncomfortable um, and stretched by the realities of the margins, I would much rather smell deodorant and perfume on the regular than what I smell. The margins might seem uh, uh, glamorous or like amazing work, and it is amazing work. But when you get into it, it is it's messy, it's difficult, it's it's challenging, it's not easily fixed or repaired. The margins are the opposite. Of the center. So this is a spatial metaphor, right? At the center is power and privilege and comfort and sufficiency. At the margins are powerlessness, oppression, exclusion, and dependency. There's also this sense of social difference at the margins that if we're in the center or we're at the margins, that whoever's the other. Um, is the other. They're, they're not us. They are the other. The margins to us is our other. At least we're, we're tempted to see the margins in that way. And here's the tricky thing about the margins. There are all different kinds of margins. There are economic margins. There are racial margins. There are sexual margins, religious margins, and other social margins. They are everywhere. They're in every state. They're in every country across the globe. The margin is just a thing in our world. And the truth is that most of us here who are white, middle class, straight, and Christian, and then, you know, the half of us or so that are male, we have lived our lives for the most part, at the center of privilege and not at the margins. And so experiencing the margins can be foreign and uncomfortable. And at the same time, some of us have lived at the margins in one way or another. And we know both the gifts and the challenges of those margins. And to the extent that somebody's center is always somebody else's margin, everybody, no matter who you are, has margins that are different or difficult for them. So let's, let's discuss, um, in what ways do the margins challenge you? Yeah. Um, what in particular makes it uncomfortable or awkward? You don't have anything. You don't. You don't think you have anything in common. Yeah. About, um, yeah. It's maybe it's uh, seemingly more difficult to relate or 
carry on a conversation? What do you talk about? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's an area of fear. Uh, Mm. uh, My security is at risk. Uh, Maybe I'm in an area that frightens me. Uh, Physically or emotionally. Uh, Or maybe a fear that I'm going to somehow screw this up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Daryl. He was more homeless than you are, right? Even when it's out of um, good intentions, that I mean, it's you quickly discover that that's uh, um, that it's an illusion of control, right? I mean, that even if we wanted to, I mean, uh, it's just it's so big, it's humongous, it's systemic. Yeah. So not only is it difficult if you're coming to the margins from some sense of center, 
it's all it's difficult to be on the outside, to be on the margin, to have to depend or rely on somebody else's good favor to be let in, as it were. Yeah. Well, your turn. to a concert and she played the piano and she's playing the piano and and she was like okay I want to get closer to you guys is that okay and everybody was like yeah and she just goes out from behind her piano (laughs) I was like well that's not really that much closer but um I'm used to playing the piano and so (laughs) this feels like I'm a lot closer to all you guys um okay so this is a story from God's word Um, Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem, and as he traveled, he was teaching and healing the people who were around him. Um, He was approaching Jericho, which was one of the last towns on his way to Jerusalem, and there was a man named Zacchaeus who lived in the town. And now Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector of the area, and he was really not well-liked because of his job and because he'd taken more money than he should have. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, But there was this huge crowd around Jesus, and so he couldn't get close. Um, He was short, and also he just couldn't push his way through. So he ran down the road where he knew Jesus was going, and he climbed up in a tree. And as Jesus came by, he looked right up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have dinner at your house today. And Zacchaeus was overjoyed and excited, and he came down the tree, and he immediately took Jesus to his house. But while he was taking Jesus, the people were grumbling and they were saying, why is Jesus going to have dinner with someone who is such a sinner? But even while they were saying that, Zacchaeus was at his house with Jesus and he was saying, I want to give half of my money to the poor. And if I have taken anything from people, if I've taken too much on taxes, I'm going to give them back four times what I owe them. And that was more than he needed to give to make restitution. And Jesus said, This man really knows what it means to be a son of Abraham. Today, he and the people in his house have been saved because the Son of Man came to seek and save people who are lost. And that's a story from God's Word. Um, What do you guys like about the story of Zacchaeus? That he gave more than he had taken and responds of being forgiven for Yeah. Yeah, he had like an enthusiastic response. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted to make us. Too late, they wind up getting caught and 
others start consequences that they actually wound up having to accept whether they wanted to or not. But it's good he commented his deceitment in between and the Lord and his sinful ways and greediness yeah. and stuff like this. And he didn't just say, I'm not going to steal anymore. He uh, said, I'm he going to exactly pay back. He had stolen and learned his lessons from that and, yeah. and, and go from there on, like on a straight narrow path. Yes, sir. So, I hadn't thought of this too much before, but both Jesus and Zacchaeus were looking for each other. Mm-hmm. Right? We talked about Zacchaeus was social outcast and he was probably skimming some money off the top and was probably, I mean, we don't explicitly say that, we just kind of assume that he was this sinful person. And I think we assume that because everyone around him assumed that. But he was looking for Jesus. Like, he was really excited to, to try to get, to try to find and hear from, and, you know, I don't, I don't think he as well as dreams he imagined if he had Jesus over his house. <coughs> but nevertheless, he was looking for that, and it was like he was ready to either repent and make changes in his life or just be part of the you know the good people community whatever whatever that took um, and just his eagerness for that and then Jesus is simply like hey I know you're looking for this come on let's do it I think his heart was just like boom yeah right yeah yeah well other than my affinity for anyone short <laughs> hey uh, <laughs> you said it not me that's <laughs> The thing, and it piggybacks on what you're saying, with him, is that Zacchaeus was not a poor guy. Mm-hmm. At least that's not the implication of the text. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was someone who was actually on the center. He was actually the guy that was, in one sense, in a more wealthy position than other people, and yet he was still an outcast mm-hmm. because people had a prejudice view of him as well. And I think that's it, it teaches it's an uncomfortable thing too that says that okay maybe. Our attitude has to be adjusted for both sets of people. And it's always someone richer than me. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the problem. They're richer than me. Or it's always someone poorer than me. Uh, so it, it, it does help you to take a look at the difference of what is centeredness and what is margin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John? Um, this shows me that the salvation is a change of heart, mm-hmm. it's reflected in a change of. Especially the attitude. And, and there's a parallel uh, in prisons, very hard criminals. They hear the gospel, and when they really get it, that those who had thought they were a big bully and, and no good and accustomed, they become model prisoners because the heart changed. Mm-hmm. The heart changed, so the behavior changed. Mm-hmm. So we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Yeah. All this passed away. That's just like. The object lesson, the story behind the, uh, the verse. Yeah. Well, one thing I like about stories, and one thing I like about talking about stories, is that you guys have hit on so many high points that I'm about to tell you. So <laughs> you can just pat yourself on the back and feel good about it. Okay. So in the story, Jesus is traveling, and he's living on the margins, and he doesn't have a place to lay his head, and he's traveling to Jerusalem and like his final scenes on earth. Um, so you think he might be in a hurry, or not in a hurry, but kind of focused on things. But he's traveling with purpose, and he's taking time to teach and to heal whenever he can, and he's not rushing. Um, Zacchaeus is a man who wants to see Jesus, 
but he knows he can't get close because of the crowds and because of his height and maybe because he thinks he isn't the kind of person who can approach Jesus. Um, so, or he, yeah, or he isn't the kind of person who fits in with the crowd of people that is around Jesus. Um, he was hated in the area because of his job and the money he had taken. Um, I think somebody said this. You don't really want to walk into a big crowd of people who think you're a big sinner. You know, that's not your, that's not where you're drawn. So he climbs up in a tree, which is extremely silly and undignified, which is why we have a kid's song about it, right? Um, and because it's unusual. But he wants to see Jesus, and in that moment, he doesn't really care if he looks silly. There's something in him driving him, and he wants to see Jesus. Um, he's hiding in the leaves, right? He's kind of like hiding there, and he's exposed because he's the only one in a tree. But at the same time, he's hidden because he's not part of that crowd that's around Jesus, right? Um, Jesus looks up, right, and he calls Zacchaeus by his name, and he tells him to come down. Um, And he invites himself to Zacchaeus' house right then and there. Um, The story tells us that Zacchaeus was overjoyed, and it's not hard to understand why. Jesus was at the center of a crowd, and he already had people lined up who needed to hear him teach and who needed him to heal them. And you could say that it might have been ridiculous for him to be looking at the margins for anyone else who might need him. But he looked to the margin of where he was to find someone who was seeking, right? More than that, someone who was seeking but who didn't come close or couldn't come close and someone who was kind of on the margin or a little bit ridiculous himself, right? Zacchaeus was a rich and powerful man and he could have tried to force his way to Jesus and said, I'm important here. You need to talk to me. But he was afraid, and he didn't go. Um, He felt compelled to hide in a tree, right? Um, Last night we went to a concert by this guy named Andrew Peterson, and he talked about this um, word. Um, I'm going to say it wrong. Tell me, Melinda, y'all can correct me because they went with us. But it was um, Zainzucht, a German word that means longing or desire. And when I was preparing this story, I kept thinking, oh, I feel like Zacchaeus just... Zacchaeus just feels this longing that he doesn't even know or understand. And it's sort of compelling him to do these weird things. He's like, I have to see this guy, and I don't know why. Um, And Andrew Peterson was talking about how, you know, this word means like a nostalgia for the future, for something that you haven't experienced yet. Um, And that all of us as humans experience that feeling, and that as Christians we can know that it's a longing for God or for the future that's coming, right? But for non-Christians, it just kind of... It's there. They don't know what it is, right? And so I just, I picture Zacchaeus responding to this longing inside of himself and doing what it takes to try to get closer to Jesus. Zacchaeus clearly wants to see Jesus, but he doesn't expect to be like the dignified, benevolent host. You know, he doesn't approach Jesus with an official invitation, and he doesn't expect that Jesus is going to recognize him or talk to him. So we don't know what they talk about at Zacchaeus' house. Um, But in the story, the mere presence of Jesus in his home is enough to have Zacchaeus, to cause Zacchaeus to have a drastic change of heart and actions, just like Kenny was saying and John was saying. And even while people are grumbling about Jesus being in the home of someone who is so sinful, Zacchaeus is saying, um, he's saying, I want my life to change and this is what I'm going to do to make that happen. Um, so we can see that God was already present in the margin with Zacchaeus. We can see that in his climbing the tree and in his immediate joy when Jesus calls him, calls to him and asks to come to his house. 
Um, it's an answer to that longing that he felt, and I think that longing was put there by God. Um, we can also see God at work in his heart and the fact that he already had an idea of what he was doing wrong, right? He already knew what he needed to do to, um, to yeah, exactly, to make restitution for his sins, right? Not cheating people on taxes and giving his money to the poor. So even though God was at work in the margins in Zacchaeus' heart, it still mattered that Jesus came to him, right? It still mattered that Jesus was looking for him. Um, at the end of the story, Jesus says that the Son of Man came to seek and save people who are lost. And despite the fact that Zacchaeus does so much seeking in the story, salvation ultimately comes through the seeking of Jesus, because Jesus is looking for him. His eyes are scanning the margins for people who are lost. So Jesus went to the margin, right, to move Zacchaeus out of the tree and into the middle of the kingdom of God. The good news in the story is that when Zacchaeus reaches out, he finds that Jesus is reaching back to him. That Jesus sees him on the margin and already saw him and seeks him out. And for Jesus, okay, for Jesus, when he reaches out to Zacchaeus, when he reaches out to someone on the margin, he knows that God is already at work. Right? Anybody know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Yeah? Uh, so, um, I love this story that I'm about to tell you. Uh, Bonhoeffer, if you don't know, is a German theologian, the guy on the left here, German theologian and pastor in the first half of the 20th century. And he's best known for um, a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote another about Christian community called Life Together. Um, And in these books, he emphasizes radical obedience to Christ, um, radical commitment to Christian community. Just um, I mean, these these books set the tone for the second half of the 20th century. I mean, they were quickly um, devotional classics. But interestingly, there was a period in Bonhoeffer's young life where he was not very interested in much of any of that. And uh, there was a time at the age of 24, uh, Bonhoeffer was brilliant. And obviously, if you've read his books, by the age of 24, he completed two dissertations in university and and seminary. He had his Ph.D. He had been offered a teaching post at the University of Berlin. And he he was thoroughly German. Um, He'd experienced the turmoil of World War One. And uh, all of the the blame heaping that happened upon the German people after World War One and the German people kind of received that and began to kind of insulate themselves. And so there was all this conversation about the German bulk, the German people and and protecting the German people. At one point, uh, Bonhoeffer even wrote that it, it would be justifiable for other people to suffer and die if it meant that the German bulk, the German people could be protected. Um, I mean, this, these are the seeds of, of Nazism and the atrocities that happened in the middle of the 20th century. But before Bonhoeffer could take his teaching post, he was required to travel abroad and get some experiences because his, his supervisor at University of Berlin, Berlin, I mean, he's 24, right? He's really young. He's very inexperienced. He needs some culture and some experiences beyond just reading books all the time. And so 
he reluctantly and not happily chooses in about 1930 to go across the Atlantic and to do some postdoctoral work at Union Seminary in New York City. And he went not expecting to learn a thing. He went um, he went not impressed. He was like, what could I gain from all of these um, white mainline liberal Protestant folks? They don't even talk about Jesus. I'm not interested in this. I'm not going to learn anything. I'm just doing this because they're making me. And then I'll go back and I'll take my professor post and I'll get on about my business. And when he got into classes, sure enough, he wasn't impressed. He was, I mean, kind of had a bad attitude about it. And so instead of spending a lot of his time at Union, he spent his time somewhere else. Harlem, of all places. Uh, Bonhoeffer's time in Harlem coincided with the Harlem Renaissance. Maybe you've heard of that. Um, This is the time when Harlem became the Mecca of black culture in the early 1900s. And it's known as a golden age of African-American culture when music and literature and stage performance Art, all of that exploded in Harlem. And there was this great migration to that part of New York City for all of the arts and creativity that was coming out of it. And Bonhoeffer was there right at, their t- that, right at that time. There's even evidence in Bonhoeffer's correspondence that he was reading and be immersing himself in the writers of the Harlem Renaissance. Most impactful was Bonhoeffer's experience in the historic Abyssinian Baptist Church, this wealthy black church in Harlem that was deeply engaged in social issues in New York. Bonhoeffer taught Sunday school for the kids of this church. Um, He was mentored by the senior pastor. And every Wednesday he taught a Bible study for a group of uh, black women. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to hear this young German theologian teaching and probably more rightly learning about the gospel from this group of, uh, of black women who lived in Harlem. Uh, Reggie Williams, in this book on the right, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, he makes the case that Bonhoeffer experienced a transformation because of what he learned from the black church and the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, He saw oppression for the first time from the perspective of the oppressed. He came to understand the nature of racism, which was a culturally foreign category for him as a German. Um, He he most importantly met the black Jesus. In other words, the Jesus known by the black church, the one who suffers with the one who experiences oppression, the one who is the empathic redeemer of humanity. Bonhoeffer went to the margins of his life, and when he got there, he encountered God. And that encounter with God at the margins changed Bonhoeffer's trajectory. He returned to Germany, and he became an outspoken prophetic voice to the German national church and its alignment with Nazism. He could see the dangers inherent within that nationalism because of what he had learned from the church in Harlem. He wrote the cost of discipleship after returning, and eventually he was arrested and executed at the age of 39 by uh, by the Nazis because of his resistance efforts. Church, hear the good news. All of us are Zacchaeus. We were lost and God comes to us 
and seeks us out and brings salvation to our house as we respond to him. And all of us are also called to be like Jesus, to go with him to the margins to seek and save the lost. And when we do, we discover that God was there all along and that that encounter transforms our lives. Can you receive that news? Can you enter into that way of following Jesus? And everybody said, Amen. We're going to move into our prayers of the people time. And um, it's an open mic, an opportunity for you to come to the front and have the microphone to pray about something that's on your heart. Maybe it's a response um, to this word from Scripture. Uh, Maybe it's something that's going on in our community or in our neighborhoods that you want to lift up to God for the next several minutes. um, You have the opportunity to lead us in prayer. And I'd encourage you, uh, don't feel like you have to give an introduction. Um, Just come up and get right to praying. Um, God knows the details. And let's uh, let's pray together in this time. Father, I want to lift up to you um, those who are ill today. I know Barrett uh, is at home sick. We pray for him. And Father, we lift up John to you. Uh, We all know he's had ongoing health concerns and he's in the midst of um, kind of dealing with those. And so, Father, we pray you uh, be with John. May he feel better. May he find uh, peace um, with his health. And may we all um, be with him during this time. Father God, I thank you for the good work you began in the heart and the life of Charles and Julie Kaiser long, long, long ago. I thank you, Father, for the values and the priorities that they had. Hospitality, like I said last time, they did a remarkable, amazing, fabulous job with that. And God, somehow they have stuck with this thing about seeking out people on the margin. And I was certainly qualified. And I thank you, God, for the gracious way that... This group, this tiny group of loving, caring, sweet people have reached out and supported and loved me and how many others have thought and said and horrible and difficult and painful things about me during this 
season. Thank you, God, for the grace and the goodness and the mercy and the gifts and support and the love and the fellowship that has come from this tiny band of folks. In Jesus' name, thank you, Jesus. Father, I'd like to lift up Katie today and Michael. Um, I pray that you will be with her. I pray for her health. I pray for the health of her baby boy. We know she's in a critical time for her pregnancy right now. And Father, we just pray your peace and your comfort will envelop her and that you will hold her close. Um, Be with Michael and give him strength. Uh, Give him the uh, words and the things to do that will help Katie. And we just ask for your blessing upon them. We pray for a healthy delivery, Father, of this sweet baby boy. In your son's name we pray, Lord. Amen. I want to pray for um, Michael and Ryan and Charles as they go with our friend this afternoon to a um, a gathering of people of different religious backgrounds and even people who are atheists and agnostic, God, and that um, it's a gathering of where they talk about peace um, and how we can get to know the people in our neighborhoods. I'm not totally sure what it is, but it's really epic that that all three of our guys are going with a guy who has moved away from church, God. And um, I just pray that the conversations there would be good and that as we are <laughs> in some ways, I don't know, I, I feel like Ryan and Charles and Michael in some ways are kind of on the margin of this um, because Stephen has been before and... Um, sort of on the outside in some ways, God. I just um, pray that you would give them people of peace, more people of peace who would reach out to them. God, that conversations would be easy that um, and deep, God. Um, and I just thank you for um, Stephen for inviting them um, and reaching out. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray that you make me, us, like Zacchaeus, that we are seeking you and looking for you constantly. I pray that our feet, our hearts don't hesitate when we see where you really are, that you're in the suffering, and you're in the places that 
may give us pause. God, I pray that, like Jesus, you pull us out of our trees, that you pull us out of the places that we can hide and feel safe. God, I know that you can use this community um, in so many great ways in Dallas, and you already are. And I pray that throughout this year you continue, that our hearts can be pointed towards you, um, and that we not be afraid uh, to go into those places and to, to find you where you truly are. Thank you for being the one who is in control of all of this and help me personally be able to give up control and to sit, to sit in suffering with people. Amen. Lord, what a good morning to be together. Thank you for your presence here with us. Um, I want to lift up the Wise family and uh, pray that you bring quick healing to um, to Alex, um, to his eyes. Um, pray that you would bring quick healing to Aiden, that his fever would uh, subside. God, would you sustain them um, physically, emotionally, spiritually in the midst of what has been a, um, a difficult season? And um, God, would you help us to surround them uh, in the midst of that. Um, There was something else I wanted to pray about and I just forgot it. But you know it, God, and I lift that up to you and I lift all of these prayers uh, up to you. We know that you hear them. We know that you're you're actively at work in our hearts and in this world. And and we entrust our hearts to you. In Christ we pray. Amen. I don't think you have. Oh, you do. It's a miracle. I do. Never mind. How about that? <laughs> God is always inviting us to find our place in His story. Part of the way that God does this is to invite us further into the life of His people, the church. You're going to find some of the next steps for community life on the handouts that are on the seats and on the floor and everywhere else that the kids have put them. <laughs> The heartbeat of our community happens in missional communities. Missional communities have rhythms for up, in, and out. Up is connecting to God, in is connecting to each other, and out is connecting to the margins. See your handouts for upcoming meeting times for our communities. We're going to have an Ash Wednesday service here in this rec center on February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day slash Ash Wednesday at 7 (laughs) p.m. Um, Worship gatherings are here every Sunday at 1030 in the morning. If you desire to worship God by giving to support God's mission through Storyline, we have a generosity box on the table over there with all the food. Um, If you're new, please fill out one of the cards. And by card, I mean the backside of that sheet that's somewhere on the floor. um, And put that in in the box, too. And uh, after ascending, if you have kids that are in class, please go get them. And now be sent in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Father. <laughs> empowered by the Holy Spirit, motivated by the love of the Father. Be sent as ambassadors of peace, justice, and reconciliation. You just got to go with this. Be sent as disciple makers for all people. Be sent to love God and love your neighbors as yourself. 
Amen. Yeah. Cue the music. I'm glad you have a good computer about all that here. Otherwise, you have a model. 